From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Medical advances come from science, and today I want to share with you the story of some scientific work being done here at Upstate that has the potential to improve the lives of people with Kaposi sarcoma. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio today is Dr. Christine King. She's a viral immunologist in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. King. Thank you very much for having me. Now, if I understand correctly, your lab is focused on several viral diseases that affect endothelial cells. That's correct. What are endothelial cells? So endothelial cells are the cells that line our blood vessels. So they create the little tubes that blood can flow through. And they're very, they're evolutionarily ancient. As you can imagine, they would have to be if they're going to take blood around the body. And they're really resistant, um, more so than many other cells, to becoming cancerous or cancer-like. And they're very tightly controlled because they have this really important function of transporting nutrients and blood around the body. Do the cells themselves move within the blood vessels or do they kind of stay in the same they stay in the same place, so they might they they undergo a process called angiogenesis, which is our term for forming new blood vessels. So they can congregate and they make tubes essentially. So it's just like if you took a tube from your plumbing, it looks exactly like that, but the tube structure is made up of all the endothelial cells put side by side. So they make like almost like a road that then gets encircled and creates the tube. Huh. And so they're really, they're really quite neat cells. And you said they're resistant to cancer. They don't often or ever? They uh, don't often. There are not very many cancers of endothelial cells. And so they appear to have this sort of uh, maybe a better break mechanism for control. We're not really sure why, but we know that there are very few cancers of endothelial cells. And so for us, diseases that are characterized by faulty endothelial cells are really interesting to us. And that's sort of what my lab focuses on. That's why or how we can look at multiple viruses because we have that one point of commonality. And okay. so we tend to focus on dengue virus, so dengue fever, dengue hemorrhagic shock, and dengue, um, dengue hemorrhagic fever and dengue shock syndrome, and Kaposi sarcoma. So Kaposi sarcoma is caused by a herpes virus, KSHV, um, in the same family as cytomegalovirus, EBV, so everybody's had EBV if you had mono when you were a kid. So it's in the same family. And, the, and Kaposi sarcoma and dengue they mess with the endothelial cells? They both. So dengue is known in more severe forms of it to have this uh, leakage of the endothelial cells. So the people die if they die because of this leakiness. Okay. In Kaposi sarcoma, these endothelial cells are even further messed up, if you want to say. So they proliferate uncontrollably. They don't make their tubes properly anymore. So the tubes are very leaky, like we see in dengue, but we don't know if the mechanism of the leakiness is the same because they wow. don't form them properly. Um, and the lesion, that's what we call um, Kaposi sarcoma, the visual aspect is a lesion. Um, those are full, those lesions are full of inflammatory infiltrate. 
So it's different than dengue, which is a sort of a whole body manifestation of vascular leak or certain areas, eyes, gut. Whereas Kaposi's sarcoma it is more focally um, present in individuals. Like in one area or something? Okay. And it can be multiple areas in the body. Huh. Um, but most of the damage, what we see occurring is in that area where you can see the lesion. Now, Kaposi sarcoma, I've heard that in, a, uh, in relation to AIDS patients, that it's a, a risk for AIDS patients, but it, it, can you explain what it is? Kaposi sarcoma is a disease, as we talked about, of endothelial cells that is present, often present, in HIV patients progressed to AIDS but not only in those patients. So this virus, like EBV and CMV, exists in the population. So in North America, about five to 10% of our population carry it. In other parts of the world, it's much more prevalent. So in Africa, 50 to 70% of people, by the time they reach puberty, carry this virus. And so they have disease in the absence of HIV. Okay. So it can occur in both. And when I try when I ex try to explain to someone, so visually, what does it look like for those of us that are my age, the older crowd? If you saw the movie Philadelphia with Tom Hanks, that is all about an AIDS patient who was recognized as AIDS because he has a very clear spot of Kaposi sarcoma on his forehead. Okay. So it's that disease that we're talking about. But prevalent, it can happen in transplant patients. It can happen in the absence of HIV. It's really quite prevalent in older Mediterranean men. Okay. Nobody has any idea why. Um, so it's not just linked to HIV. So when scientists are studying Kaposi sarcoma, they've thought that the endothelial cells were what was causing the inflammation, right? Yes. But you had another idea. So I had a different us. idea. So my training, I, over the years, I have tried to hone my training to understand inflammation in a broader context and understand sort of the evolutionary origins of inflammation and, and how that directs everything else. So inflammation, when you feel sick from the cold or a flu, it's the immune response that's making you feel sick. It's not the virus. Viruses don't, their goal is to not make you sick. Their goal is to simply produce babies. That's what they want to do. They want to make progeny and they want to put it out into the world to continue the species. Our system goes, well, no, we're not going to allow that and fights against it. And that's what makes us feel crappy. So I sort of looked at this disease coming from a background of a immunologist that chose to train in both virology and immunology so I could look at pathogenesis because it's immune mediated from both points of view. And so when I looked at this disease, I said, well, endothelial cells are not what an immunologist would term as a pro-inflammatory cell. They're responders to inflammation. So they need to take the signal and then amplify it or put out a different signal to say, okay, we got a problem, we got to bring in the troops. They don't initiate that. Instead, their companion cells, mast cells, um, which are potent pro-inflammatory cells that exist in the tissues, sit next to the endothelial cells, and these two cells interact 
to govern each other. So mast cells, when they're activated, tell the endothelial cells, okay, it's time to open up and bring in the guys. And then the endothelial cell, okay, so now I'm gonna add to this. So I sort of step so back. So let me back you up. Yeah. Mast cells are, what, what do mast cells do normally? Normally, um, so that's a really good question. Uh, when people think about mast cells, they automatically think allergy, asthma, and anaphylaxis. So the people Allergic with the reaction. right, okay. the people with the bees um, allergy that when they get stung they can die and they need an epipen. So you can imagine. So a as a person who trained with these cells, right, to come into this disease, you look at where the lesions are. And they're all areas where mast cells are really prevalent. Um, the disease is entirely dependent not just on the virus but on inflammation. So if you take the inflammation away the disease goes away. So it's not a real true cancer in that way. Because in cancer, that doesn't happen. Right. So we sort of looked at it and said, well, we have these really pro-inflammatory cells, mast cells, that are all in the same area that we know evolved and sort of control endothelial cells. So I sort of took that and went, you know, I think that these cells are involved in this driving this disease. So instead of just focusing on allergy and asthma and anaphylaxis, but using that in terms of these are the only cells in the body that'll kill you in 15 minutes. Just like that. I mean, if you don't if you don't stop an anaphylactic reaction, these patients will die. That shows you how powerful, how powerful. they are. So now we have a disease that's governed by inflammation in all the areas where these cells are, and I sort of went, well, I wonder. And that was the beginning. And most of the time, we're, never, we're not right, or we're partially right. Um, so I sort of put together a team of scientists from across the country to, and to ask these questions. And I was really fortunate enough to work with a good pathologist at Ohio State, Leona Ayers, who sort of took me on board and said, OK, you're junior. I'm going to look. Let's see if you're right. And it was incredible. So mast cells are there in these patients in the areas where the disease is. They're highly activated. I can measure it in the patient's blood, independent of any time, which is really unusual, because you have to remember, if these cells can kill you, what's the way to control them? To make their mediators, the things that will kill you, short half-life. So it doesn't last very long. So normally, if you're measuring their activation, you have to get them exactly when they go off. But we sort of took random samples and said, oh, all right, well, let's just see. And the levels were incredibly high, suggesting we have this constant activation going on. Um, so that's sort of where I stepped in and went, yeah, I think, I think the virologist maybe missed an important piece. Um, Let me ask you, do mast cells go where the Kaposi sarcoma is, or does Kaposi develop where there's a bunch of mast cells? These are good questions, and these are questions that we're trying to address. I think it's a bit of both. I think that, in general, I tend to teach and think that things are relatively that simple. So it's usually a combination of mechanisms. So I think that, so mast cells are in all tissues in your body. So they're in the brain, they're in the heart, they're in the lip, they're everywhere. Um, we know that they increase in number in areas where there's KS, those lesions. So I think there's uh, two things going on. I think that the KS is taking advantage of the inflammatory signal because if you can't beat them, you might as well join them, 
right. Um, and that as a result of that activation and what the virus does to those endothelial cells, they then put out uh, signals, we call them chemokine signals, to recruit in more mast cells. Because again, if inflammation is necessary for the disease, then that's a good thing, and they want to bring in more of it. And so we think that there's local proliferation, maybe, and an influx of new mast cells. And that, and this sort of led us to think that, okay, perhaps if we stop this, we can help resolve the disease. The current treatment for KS, um, so KS in HIV patients, when you control your HIV, most patients recover, but there's a really significant subset, 20% in the country, and that appears to be rising, that never clear their KS, even when they control their HIV and they're no longer immunocompromised. And so what we wanted to sort of understand was, does this mean anything? Can we, can we modulate um, the disease by hitting it at its genesis? So right now we cut it out or we give chemotherapy to drugs. Most of the time the disease comes back. So it doesn't really work. And it's not a real cancer. So a chemotherapeutic drug is not gonna work that well. So instead of hitting the end point, which sort of is what we've had to date for treatments for m most diseases, we are sort of trying to work back to, okay, if we can identify some of the drivers, some of the promoters, and we can stop that, then we prevent the disease from happening and we regress it if it is there. And so that's what I sort of went on. And serendipitously, we were, I was asked to consult on a um, HIV patient that had Kaposi's sarcoma and his Kaposi's sarcoma was getting worse and nobody really understood what was going on. And and so they brought me in and sort of presented the case here at Upstate. And I, you know, told them about the work that I was doing, my hypothesis on mast cells, what I thought was going on, and that, you know, I would like to speak to the patient and I think we should treat him this way. And so they went, okay, let's, let's get you in and see if we can help this person. Um, and so what we, what we didn't know was that in patients with mast cell activation, okay, and we could do a whole nother section on mast cell activation disease, um, they have symptoms. So this, as we said, the immune system is what makes you sick, feel sick. So mast cells make you feel very sick. So think about allergy, but now a thousandfold. How crappy you feel with allergies, but now you've got major dumping of mediators from these cells, right? So they cause bone pain, they cause eye pain, nausea, diarrhea, migraine, vomiting, uh, so hives. That's, with Kaposi sarcoma, that's what you're dealing with? So this is what we didn't know, because when you look in a chart, people, they have HIV. Most of the patients we see here have HIV, so they have lesions, and that's about all the doctor says. Because he's like, well, or they're like, well, that person has HIV. But specific symptoms are very important to understanding what's going on in the patient. I really pay attention to symptoms, details. And so I had the opportunity of spending quite a bit of time with this patient. And, you know, in my very first interviews, it was very apparent that he had almost all of the symptoms of mast cell activation syndrome. Massive mast cell activation syndrome. This man felt horrible. 
He had night sweats. He had GERD, so esophageal reflux. He had hives. He had many allergies to medications. He had bone pain. He had eye pain. He, had, he was a mess. And so I told him what I thought was going on. And we agreed to move forward. And so I just really simply took what we knew about controlling mast cell mediators in asthma and allergy and applied it, which is much the same is the beginning of what we do when we're treating mast cell activation disease patients. And so I gave them H1 and H2 blockers, same ones that patient can go and buy off the shelf. Oh, medication for? Ranitidine, Zyrtec, okay. right? H1 and H2 blockers. So these histamine antihistamines have been around for years and years. Old people can take them. Babies can take them. People can take them every day. And co combine that with uh, a drug called Montelukast, which is given to asthma patients. It controls another class of mediators that mast cells produce. Mm -hmm. And in combination that uh, with that, vitamin C, which is known to be a mast cell stabilizer. And so how did he our do? vitamins are really important. Oh, okay. Um, he did fabulous. Within two weeks, his return appointment, he had already seen regression. He had already resolved many of his mast cell activation disease symptoms. Over the next three months, he continued to resolve. His lesions shrunk. He felt better. He lost the edema weight. He told me he felt the best he'd felt in years and years and years. And then he was excited that he might actually be able to wear shorts now because wow. people wouldn't point. That's got to be gratifying as a scientist to see it was the incredible. impact of some of your work. Yeah, it was incredible. I really felt like the hours and days and years that we've spent actually translated into something that was useful. Well, let me ask you sort of how science works from now. So you've got this premise and you've got a, an anecdotal case. Mm -hmm. um, what do you do from here on? So from here on, I mean, there are so many questions, so many questions to ask. Um, we want to understand if this treatment, so I, I treated him with a series of three different drugs mm -hmm. plus vitamin C. So we want to now know, do we need to treat them with all those? Can we hone? Do we need to add additional drugs? Can we speed up? the regression, what is the mechanism? So, so the way granting agencies work is they want fine details. So right now we're trying to delve into what exactly did histamine and the antihistamines do? How did it modulate those endothelial cells? How did the leukotrienes do that? And when we block them, what happened to those cells exactly? So we're gonna do that in the lab. And then we've developed a mouse model got to start small to look in vivo. So now can we modulate uh, how fast it grows, how big it is? Can we make it shrink faster? Do we need everything to then create some really solid data to move in to do a clinical trial? And so we're talking with, we have an AIDS malignancy working group. There are some individuals who run um, some clinical trials in Africa that are interested in working together to sort of roll this out to see, okay, maybe it was a fluke. Maybe our one patient was just a fluke. Well, also is your one true? patient is an AIDS patient, and some of the Kaposi sarcoma patients don't have AIDS. So Right, but in, when we did our analysis, we looked 
in classic case. So those who don't have HIV that have naturally naturally acquired Kaposi's sarcoma are called classic KS. So we work with the AIDS and Cancer Specimen Resource Center in San Francisco, which is NCI funded, been a fabulous support of this work. NCI uh, is the National Cancer The National Institute. Cancer Institute. So NIH funded, taxpayer funded, incredible resource. And they've really come on board. Um, so I, classic KS is hard to find in this country because it's mostly Mediterranean men. Um, but they tracked down throughout the whole country. I got tissues and serum from these patients, and they are also, they also show the same degree of mast cell activation, mast cell infiltration that HIV patients do. So it's independent of HIV. This seems to be a global KSHV mechanism. And so going to Africa or doing a clinical trial in San Francisco will allow us to address whether or not this targeting of ma using mast cell directed therapies will be efficacious in a large number of patients or will it only work in 10% or 50%. We had such dramatic and f incredible regression that I, I suspect it's gonna work in most patients. Well, and you're talking about medications that already exist and are proven and have been on the market for yes. a long time. Can can doctors yes. sort of try this strategy yes. with their patients now? Yeah. Yes, they could. They certainly could. And that's why it's been presented and published at international meetings so that those individuals can take this really simple idea and apply it cheaply. Most of, we don't have to worry about money in North America generally. The majority of patients that die from this are in Africa, and a lot of them are kids. It's horrible in kids in Africa. And so what we're really, and, and my lab is really passionate about, is using cheap, already existing drugs that countries can generate very cheaply and give to people so that it can actually make a difference. It doesn't matter if it works and it's outrageously expensive, they will never be able to access it. And I don't believe that that is a responsible use of taxpayer money. I think that what we come up with should be available to everyone. And that's really important to me. And we also have the whole idea of when you're talking about herpes viruses, lifelong, you never clear them. These are the guys that stay with you stay. forever. So that, um, that, that ideological agent, as we call it, or that driver is always there. So I have to be, we have to be able to give these patients drugs that they can take their whole life because they're always going to have the virus until somebody else figures out how to clear the virus. I don't do that. Um, so we have to give it to them. It has to be cheap. It has to be safe. You have to be able to give it to kids. You have to be able to give it to old people. And this fits that bill. And well, so we're really hoping, and you know, we have other things that we can use. Uh, sodium chromalin is a very effective mast cell stabilizer that lots of GERD patients take. It's gastrochrome, they drink it. That is another option. We can add that, can we, can we enhance it? Could we just give them that? So really to understand what happened, how it worked, can we refine it? And now can we roll it out and show that yes, this actually makes a difference for people. Well, 
Well, I find your work fascinating, and I appreciate you coming in to share it with our listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, My guest has been viral immunologist Dr. Christine King from Upstate Medical University's uh, Microbiology and Immunology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.